and every one, I can think of a way that that's impacted me. And maybe you can relate. Maybe in a way that you think of different places and that you've been or visited or traveled or lived and, and how each one has impacted your story, whether a chapter or a large part of it. Well, places shape us. Places shape us. And they, I think, have a kind of spiritual dimension in, in addition to the kind of physical being located somewhere. Um, they, they leave a mark on us. And so in this series, we're going to travel together a different place each week. We're going to travel with Jesus to the places that he visited, that he walked, that he spent time in, in his three years of ministry on the way to the cross. Because I don't think we take a look at the ways that those places impact the story of Christ as he walked this earth. And it's also my hope that in this series that you'll begin to look at the places in your own life that have impacted you. And also how the places Jesus, had vi Jesus visited in his story, how similarly we visit places just like that. Especially spiritually. And even right now, as you are in your story. So, of course, today is the first Sunday of Lent. Um, if you didn't know that, well, it is. It's a period of 40 days, and that ex that's excluding Sundays. Sundays are considered like feast days. You know, if you participate in the whole giving up something for Lent or know somebody that is, usually Sunday is kind of the cheat day, kind of get by with, with doing uh, your candy or coffee or whatever it is. Well, Lent is considered a time of preparation and discipline and focus. It's a time of fasting, especially, and that's what the early church participated in. Well, and it's interesting that, that in the fourth, it was in the 4th century after what was known as the Council of Nicaea, which was one of the big, big meetings of the, of the church in those days, um, that it was in the 4th century that Lent was actually made official. It's got this kind of the stamp of approval from uh, the, the big C church. And it was actually known as a 40-day fast. It was less of kind of the countdown to Easter and more of a 40-day fast. And did you know, this is really interesting, scholars have discovered that some early Christians actually spent time in the Egyptian desert, specifically in a fast following the, what they call theophany, or we celebrate epiphany, the coming of the Magi, for 40 days. They spent 40 days in the Egyptian desert, uh, starting in January, all the way past that. And so they spent that time fasting and praying, and they imitated Jesus' 40 days that he spent in the desert. And the end of that was not Easter. They didn't celebrate Easter at the end of that 40 days, but they celebrated baptism. They had a baptismal ceremony to bring together people that were new in the faith. It's kind of interesting. So I think just reflecting on that, I think an appropriate place for us to start our journey today is the wilderness. Think about that. The wilderness. So question for you. When I say wilderness, what comes to mind? I think we all have kind of different reactions. So which of these would you identify with? This is our little quiz. I'm going to ask for your response. Are you someone who joins the wilderness? A, yes, send me there right now. Like, anybody A? Yes, send me. Like, I'm going. Right, pack me up. I've got my bags. How about B? Sure, a tent is okay a night or two. Right, hear the crickets at night. Yeah, I can kind of tolerate that. How about C? Yes, glamping. The glamorous camping, Right? You get the best of both worlds. You get the nice hot shower and the AC or the heat. 
and you get to be like in the great outdoors, see the mountains, the lake, you know, everything. Or D, no, give me a hotel, please. Yes, we have confession. Yeah, well, like I said, this is a season of confession as well. So, um, yeah, we all have kind of different aspects of that. I would say, you know, probably me, probably sure a, a tent is a, a okay for a night or two. I enjoy more like the hiking stuff, transporting different, different places. Um, but, but it's interesting that even if you like the wilderness, even if you like, you were like, yes, send me there now, that doesn't mean that you like every wilderness. Doesn't mean you like every wilderness. And it also doesn't mean that you get to choose every wilderness you're in. So sometimes we go to the physical wilderness, to the mountains and the valleys and the beautiful places and the deserts, but sometimes our, the wilderness that we enter is more of one of loneliness or purposelessness, of pain and suffering, kind of wandering and feeling lost for a season. We can also find ourselves in a spiritual wilderness, a place and a time that we begin to wonder, is this all real? Like, is Jesus really the Son of God? Like, did this stuff really, like, is the Bible really true? Like, I, maybe, maybe you've grappled with that. But I have good news. And that good news is that when we are in the process of wandering in a wilderness, even wandering and feeling like we've lost Jesus in a way, we're actually in a process of rediscovering him. And that's where he shows up. It's interesting. That's where he shows up is in the wilderness. And, and so I have good news. If you're, you are not alone, if you have in some sense of the word lost Jesus, because guess what? Mary, his own mother, did multiple times, multiple times. We see that when Jesus was a boy, they took a road trip to Jerusalem, and they were worshiping there, and then they were leaving, and somehow Jesus got lost in the crowds, and they didn't know that he was gone for a couple days. And so they find him in the temple teaching among the scholars. And you imagine how parents, Mary and Joseph, were very panicked about this. They lost Jesus. But then Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth. And it's interesting, we don't really know much. We don't really know anything about the time from when Jesus was a boy to the time that he was about 30 years old. We can assume that he probably lived a, just a kind of normal life at that time. Carpenter as a dad, you know, living in this small town. Well, 20 years, just about 20 years after she lost Jesus once, Mary loses him again, a second time. Because this time, though, he forever leaves the comfortable home that she had created for him. He goes to the wilderness to hear his cousin named John, John the Baptizer. We call him John the Baptist. He wasn't like the Baptist, like the denomination, but he's a John the Baptizer. To hear his cousin preach in the wilderness of Judea. And it's a story that's found in three of the four Gospels. We have four Gospels of the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, it's found in three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Mark, Mark is the shortest Gospel. So if you've never read any of the Gospels, if you've never read the Bible, pick up Mark. It's short and sweet. It's to the point. Mark constantly uses the words immediately. They go from place to place to place. It gives you a real great picture of the life of, of, of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to look today to start off, is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, when Jesus enters this place of wilderness. And you can follow along in your sermon notes, in your, um, 
and uh, also online. We have some of the, we have those online too for your programs. Um, and so Mark tells us, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So what's interesting is that this story, if you didn't know, this is a pivotal time in the life of Jesus. It's pivotal because John the, John the baptizer, his preaching and the baptism of Jesus at this time would actually set in motion a chain of events that would lead to John's own death and then would lead to Jesus' crucifixion three years later. This is a turning point in the story, is the wilderness. And I think reflecting on that, the wilderness can be a place of new beginnings, can be a place of new beginnings. And we see that in Jesus' baptism. And, and if you look at the places, the geography, the, even the archaeology where this took place, there's a place called Al-Magtas. It's also known as Bethany beyond the Jordan. Today it's located in the country of Jordan. You see it there on the map. And it's kind of an odd location. It's an odd location because the Jews practice uh, their kind of source of baptism, which was sort of a, a means of cleanliness or cleansing, and that took place in ritual baths in places like Jerusalem. It was often structured kind of like a baptistry. If you've been to a Baptist church and you've peered into the baptistry, something that's like kind of built into the front of the building, you see that there's stairs that go down one side and stairs that go up the other. It actually takes off of the practice of the ancient Jews. And so John, though, we see, John, though, was baptizing during this purification rite, not in Jerusalem. Instead, he chose a, a place like this. He chose the river, a dirty place, a place out in the country, in the wilderness of Judea, the middle of nowhere. Why? Maybe the story's showing us because God is doing something new, doing something not religious, doing something not for religious people, but for ordinary broken people in the countryside. And the early Christians those who follow Christ um, after his death and resurrection, the early Christians reflecting on this story, they were very unsettled at the baptism of Jesus. And I don't know if you've read this before or heard this before and be like the question like, why did Jesus get baptized, right? It doesn't seem to make sense. Why would you do that? Why would the one who knew no sin enter into baptism of the repentance of sin, right? It's a good, really good question. That's what the early Christians really struggled with. Well, it was because he identified with people. He identified with people, not for his need, but for ours. He wasn't embarrassed to wade into the dirty waters of the Jordan. He wasn't embarrassed to identify with sinners, those who had been baptized before and after him, by wading into the water. I think it's kind of like this. If, if you've had a friend or if you had a friend who was wrestling with an addiction, Maybe they came to you and you talked to them and prayed together and you talked about them going to a meeting for the first time. NAAA, uh, Celebrate Recovery, at the Cross Recovery that we have here at the church. Um, and they're like, ah, I really don't want to go. Like, it makes me feel weird. And you said, hey, you know what? I'll go with you. 
I'll go with you. And they were okay with that. And you went to that meeting. Would you feel the need to say to everybody, oh, I'm with them. I don't have an addiction, I'm their friend, right? Some of us would kind of feel that way, like, oh, I'm going to this NA meeting, and there's all these addicts around, and here's my friend. Like, oh, I'm, I'm good. Some of us would feel the need. Or would you sit quietly and be there with them and pray and, and look at the people around you and pray for your friend? Well, similarly, that's what Jesus did when he was baptized. Instead of saying, oh, I'm with them, I really don't need this, he, he just went and did it anyway. He identified with sinners not only by joining but inviting them to follow. See, friends, his journey is ours. His journey is ours, and the wilderness is a new beginning. It's a new beginning, a place for us to know Jesus in a new way and to know that maybe God is doing something differently. Maybe God is doing something different than what we would expect the world to present to us. Because what's always interesting is through scripture and also through history, we see the times when God is active the most and the places is mostly on the margins. Biblically, historically, among people who are on the margins. That's how large movements are started. Not when things are going great for the church, but when things are going crappy for the church. It's the times when we see God really exploding and people of faith coming to faith and people's lives being transformed and changed. Maybe it's a way for us to experience a new beginning. Whatever wilderness that you might be facing at this point, maybe there's something new for you right there. But we also see that wilderness is a place of rediscovery. It's a place of rediscovery. And you imagine that as Jesus is being baptized in this kind of momentous occasion, you have people that are watching this, this happen and the spirit descends and there's this voice that's spoken. It's a pretty momentous occasion, right? Like, if you're writing, like, Dear Diary, like, this is like, you star that page, you fold it over, like, this just happened. Well, what's interesting is that following probably one of the most spiritually significant moments in Jesus' life, he's led or driven to the wilderness. It's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? That, that Mark tells us that at once the Spirit sent him out into where? The wilderness. Have you ever experienced that? You had like a mountaintop moment, like, yay, things are going great, whatever, and then it's like, boom, right? You've been there, done that. Well, but it's interesting that Jesus is led or driven to the wilderness, and it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. So let me just give you a little picture of what this looked like when he was leaving this spot. So Jesus leaves John at the Jordan River, and he hikes five miles west, five miles west across a desert. It, it kind of looks the same today if you visit that area of the world, that there's kind of scrub, there's not much that's there. And then Jesus would have passed on the north side of Jericho, and he would have passed this desert oasis town, and he would come close to this little place that's not really known very well, but it's called the Wadi Quelt. You've probably never heard of it. Well, the Wadi Quelt was a a place where King Herod, if you know King Herod, he had built a fabulous winter palace that his family would stay at. And there's actually ruins that you can visit there today. So Jesus would have passed all that, and then just north of Jericho, he would have entered the first of many Judean wilderness mountains. Looks kind of like this. Many mountains. It's rugged. It's barren. And one specific mountain is called Mount Quarantal. 
Mount Quarantel, also known as the Mount of Temptation. It's called Quarantel with the word quar, meaning 40, for said for the Jesus, the time that Jesus spent there. And, and many of us think of wilderness kind of as forest land. Well, it wasn't forest land. It was kind of desert and very rugged atmosphere. It's dry. It's arid. It's kind of like the badlands of South Dakota. But halfway up that mountain, you can see this. There's a big cave. And if you look real close at the mountain, you can kind of see it on the side. And people from the fourth century on, tradition said that Jesus slept there. It was the largest cave that was closest to the Jordan River, a place to get out of the wind, to get out of the sun. And today, there's a monastery that's located there. It looks like this. There's a monastery that covers the cave. And you can go and visit this space, I hope to someday. It goes back deep, and there's like this small little space all the way back in the mountain it's kind of a, like a three foot, the dimensions are three feet by six feet by five feet. Pretty, pretty small and tight, nice and cozy. And it's said that that is the place that Jesus slept. And today, if you visit that spot, you'll see photos and prayers. People have, have written prayers in all different languages around the world. People that have put those in that small spot covering the floor. And then there's this desolate path that goes on the backside of the mountain that covers the cave. It's a, imagine that, play, that place that Jesus walked and wandered during the day as he was fasting and he was praying. See, I think the wilderness is, for many of us, uh, that dry place. That place that we don't want to go when life is barren and hard. And for Jesus, we're told that he wrestles with evil. That he wrestles with Satan. And even in scripture, we see this kind of pattern happening over and over of, of these very significant people in scripture who spend a, a pretty large amount of time in the wilderness. We see David fleeing from Saul, spending time in caves. He writes a psalm that asks, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Have you ever thought that, prayed that? That's the perfect prayer to pray in the wilderness. We think of Moses and the Israelites wandering around the desert in the wilderness, and we even look at in history, in the third century, there were people who were following Christ, spiritually hungry Christ followers, who began to live in caves too, in the wilderness of Egypt and Palestine and Syria. They're known as the desert fathers and mothers. And get this, at one time there were, were several thousand of them who were living in the Judean wilderness. Third century. But for all of them, we can say that God met them there. It was a place they sought God. See, what was true for them, I think, is still true for us. In our spiritual wilderness, it's a place of rediscovery. Many of us reach a time in our lives that we come to question, where is God? Maybe in the midst of a trial, pain, suffering, a diagnosis. Some of us, when you're lying awake at night, you're like, what, what is this? Is, was Jesus God? You know, uh, we have to look at scripture and see like these guys wrote these stories of Jesus. Um, and we conclude sometimes that, well, maybe they were trying to perpetuate a hoax. But historically, we see that wasn't the case. The disciples of Jesus actually believed he was the son of God to the point that the majority of them went to their own death because of it. And, and sometimes we get caught up in an air of modernity. 
that, hey, we, well, we have science now, and we have you know, this, these historical backgrounds, and people have all these kind of religious things. And of course, we're modern, and we listen to podcasts and read news online that we always know is true, right? Yeah, but you look at the stories. Just because we think we know everything, you know, maybe there's an a, a, a air of modesty or humility to take to say, but what if? What if it actually is true? What if you would take time to investigate it? Have you actually read the scriptures? Many people who don't believe have not, and I would dare you to ask questions. Read the gospels for yourself. Read them a couple times. See if, if you see what Jesus is doing there in these places that Jesus walked. Maybe your discovery of Jesus will be in an unexpected place. Maybe it won't be, it'll be less of an of a idea thing and, and more of an experience of him. I know that was for me when I was going through a time in my life when I was questioning and trying to figure things out. And I just have a confession here. I don't have it all figured out even today. There's times I'm like, how did that work, right? Is this like real, how does this, you get this side and that side, I'm trying to put things together. But there was a time in my life when I was like, is this whole thing really just a bunch of hooey, right? Should I even believe this stuff? And it was actually an experience I had, an unlikely place, an unlikely community that I had joined in worship. And it was an experience around, actually around a table that I had a very significant impact uh, that the Holy Spirit came into my life. And I was like, this, I don't know how all the reasoning comes and the flood and the Genesis thing and all that, but this holy cow is real. And maybe for you, that's the place you find Jesus. Losing Jesus, finding Jesus in the wilderness, that's the only way we, I think we really make spiritual progress. Just at the time that we think that we have him figured out, that's when he goes missing. And too often, though, people give up then. We give up then. We may fear that we've lost him, but if we seek, then we'll find and discover for ourselves a rediscovery. A rediscovery when actually, folks, we may have to rethink some things. Maybe things that we were taught years earlier. See, that's what repentance means, to rethink things in the light of Christ and to admit that maybe the version of Jesus that we have been following, maybe that's, that version, not Jesus himself, but maybe that version was actually wrong. See, wilderness is a place that that happens, that rediscovery. But I think more significantly, wilderness is a place of testing. And I think you've experienced this if you've been in a wilderness situation. It's the place that temptation strikes the hardest. And the 40 days, super significant that, that you look in Scripture, there's that pattern of 40 days. 40 days, the arcs, the, the rain fell by Noah's ark, for Noah to form the ark and build the ark. That Elijah fasted, that Moses wandered with the Israelites. Um, we see in Deuteronomy 8.2 that we're told, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. What's interesting is that when he was tempted, Jesus' responses to Satan come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. We don't know all the temptations that he encountered in his time in those 40 days. Matthew and Luke tell us three of them. Mark just kind of, once again, he goes quickly through the story. And thinking about this part of the story, 
Have you ever thought about like how this happened? Like how it took place? A lot of times we think of this, right? Isn't Satan like he has the horns and he has the wings and he's wearing the red suit and it's kind of this big thing. But what if it's more like this? Yourself. The voice inside you that says, ah, come on, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, didn't you, why don't you try that? Why don't you do that? Maybe it's a little bit more subtle how our adversary works. What if Jesus, though, Jesus, though, in his moments of temptation, we see him recite these scriptures, to speak through scripture. And I think scripture is often a great place to start when we're struggling and facing those wilderness moments and temptations. Because it is possible to overcome our adversary. And if you don't believe me, then you missed the game last night when UNC beat my adversary, Duke University. Um, It is possible to win. I got some people that are like, what? I didn't even know that that happened. Anyway, I just had to put that plug in there. But uh, just quickly, we see uh, Luke and Matthew kind of tell us the details of the story. First temptation that Jesus encounters is food, which I think is a big temptation for all of us, right? Luke chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. He ate nothing for those days. At the end of them, he was hungry. I think so. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Kind of takes us back to the Garden of Eden. The story with the fruit, the forbidden fruit that you're not supposed to eat. We see the story of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of oatmeal. Like, who does that? We have the Israelites who are wandering in the desert and they're tired of the supply of manna. I call them the frosted flakes. We'll have a sermon series on that. But the flakes that come down are like, we're tired of eating this stuff. It's all about food. Stories of instant gratification that lead to a loss of blessing. It's temptation. Many of us struggle in times of hunger. And maybe it's, maybe it's hunger for food. We have a lot, lots of folks that, that wrestle with that today, believe it or not. Um, but there's also different kinds of hungers, maybe relational hunger. And, and in that relational hunger, you, you satisfy yourself with something that you know that you shouldn't. We, we suffer with all these kinds of hungers for ourselves, like for purpose, for meaning for productivity, but we see that Jesus encounters that too, in solidarity with us, a place of testing. Second temptation, worldly acquisition. The story continues, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I think this is kind of the picture. There's always that temptation to sell one's soul for power and wealth. That we may start with the best of intentions, but then be Lord. And I was just talking with someone the other day about, about how, you know, how it's so easy when things are going well, especially come like financially, like to do the right thing right, to take the high road. But when things are strapped, you know, isn't it like tempting to kind of cut corners? Isn't it tempting to manipulate? Isn't it tempting to kind of get your own way? Isn't it tempting to be dishonest on your taxes or misrepresent your products and services or spend your money only on yourself? Worldly acquisition is a temptation, especially in the wilderness. And then the last temptation is a temptation to test God. And Interesting, Satan quotes scripture this time. He's heard Jesus a couple times. The devil led him to Jerusalem 
and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that they will not strike a foot against stone, Jesus answered. It is said, though, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And this is kind of understood in one of two ways. Kind of win affirmation through stunts, the first reality show, or a temptation to test fate and to end it all. To say, well, God will save me, right? You've heard that before. Like, God will save me. I don't, I, you know, I'm just going to believe in God and trust in God. If I jump off here, if I do what I want, well, God's, you know, God will just be there for me. But I think all these temptations have something in common. And that's a temptation to do it my way instead of God's way. It's kind of functional atheism. To say, oh, well, I believe this, but in a sense, I know better than what God wants. And I think there's a deep fear behind, behind every loss, behind every moment that we're caught unexpected, by a moment that we're out of control. We have a, we're tempted to believe that we've been abandoned by the God who should have saved us or prevented this. And therefore, I'm going to do it on my own. See, Jesus knew what was ahead, though. He saw difficulty, though, through the eyes of faith. And he did not succumb to those temptations as a means of testing. And his suffering in the long run, in the long game, was redeemed. See, Jesus' way is different. And I think that's a stumbling block for a lot of us, when we reach a spiritual wilderness, a spiritual wilderness of, of doubt, of wondering, you know, is, is this all just, you know, is this even true anymore? Well, there's a great um, novel, a great story. It's kind of a classic, The Brothers Karamazov. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. If you haven't, well, don't worry about it. But I'm going to tell you about a famous chapter in that story called The Great Inquisitor. And so the whole story is about these three brothers. They're all kind of different places spiritually. One from being an, a monk to the other extreme being an atheist. And so the story goes that there's this atheist brother who meets with his monk brother, and he wants to convince him that Jesus is not real and that this is all just a bunch of hooey. And so he, the monk brother listens to this story that the atheist brother recites. The atheist brother is called, named Ivan, and it's a poem. It's a fictional poem called The Grand Inquisitor, and he uses it to challenge faith. And it's a poem where in the story, it's kind of, so this is like a novel with a story in it, so that's if you're following with me. Um, and the story in the poem is where the story where Jesus appears in 16th, the town of 16th century Seville. This didn't actually happen, this is made up. And he appears there and he brings this little girl back to life. But then there's this cardinal, this holy man, called the Grand Inquisitor. And he takes Jesus and he locks him up with the goal of putting him to death. Well, he meets with Jesus and he interrogates him. The inquisitor, the cardinal, he says, I'm going to kill you tomorrow. And then he tells Jesus all the things he did wrong during his first coming. He says, you should have followed the counsel of the powerful and intelligent adversary in the wilderness. You should have done what he said. Then everyone would recognize you and embrace you and worship you. And then he told Jesus that people have spent 15 centuries correcting your mistakes, Jesus. 
We've taken Caesar's sword and majesty upon ourselves. That we've become the solution. Well, Jesus doesn't get killed. He's not killed by the Grand Inquisitor. Instead, he's released. And it's interesting because Jesus only speaks once in the story, and that is to bring the little girl in the story back to life. And so upon his release, uh, he goes up, Jesus goes up to the Cardinal, to the Grand Inquisitor, as he's walking out the door. And he goes to him, and he kisses the man, and he turns around and leaves. And the story tells us that the Cardinal's heart melts but he decides to hold on to his former ways. Mysterious story. Well, he didn't succeed. It, it, Christ kind of loses control in the, his own, the own story that's created here. But then back to the bigger story of the monk and the atheist. The atheist finishes the story telling this and shakes his head and says, wasn't that cardinal right? And the monk, brother, what he does, he shakes his head too and goes up and kisses his brother. How does the story end? The argument cannot be made. Because maybe it's a story of grace and love, of experiencing Christ for ourselves and knowing the truth rather than an argument. And maybe reflecting on the ways that we have taken our own control in the world, the temptation to do it our way instead of God's way. And that's all in the wilderness. A place that we discover. We discover who Christ is and who We are. And just to let you know, there will be wilderness. Maybe it's time to welcome it. Instead of run from it, that's the tendency, to run away or to say, hey, maybe I'm I'm questioning Jesus. I just put a block in the road instead of moving forward. But something can happen there that is unlike any other place or any other time. It's best, it's actually better to enter the wilderness and seek Jesus there than to remain comfortably numb where we are. Sometimes we need a desert. We need a wilderness where our soul can grow still and then expand because it's a beginning, a rediscovery, and a strengthening. We discover who we are, who Jesus is, and where we're going. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you today as people who have wandered, Lord. As people who are wandering in our own way. Some of us questioning, having many doubts and and lots of things going on in our lives, Lord. We've had situations we've faced that it's felt like a never-ending wilderness, Lord. Help us to see you there and to meet you there. To know that even in those spaces and places, the places where Jesus walked in the, the barren, arid terrain are the places that you walk even alongside us before we recognize it. We know we will be tempted. We know that we will be tempted to go our own way. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, to keep looking for you, to not give up hope, Lord. And Lord, we know that you meet us here, Lord, and that we don't measure up, Lord, and that's because we're in need of your grace, Lord. And to know that as a people, that we can receive your forgiveness, to know that we're in need of your grace, Lord. And that's as we approach the table today, we approach it with the humility to know that we are not God. 
We're thankful that you are, Lord. Meet us here. Meet us in our journeys. Meet us in the wilderness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.